السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Can someone please give me sound check uh, to make sure that everyone can hear me سؤال اوكي اوكي جزاكم الله خير طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبه للمتقين ولا عدوان الا على الظالمين واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له اله الاولين والاخرين واشهد ان نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الامين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى اله وصحبه اجمعين ما بعد so welcome to uh, what is week two of our fourth year of QP, Quranic Progression. Uh, and alhamdulillah, we started last week and we began with the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl. Uh, but before we do that, then uh, also as was mentioned last uh, week in last week's lesson, this past weekend was the deferral exam. So alhamdulillah, everyone's, everyone who's going to take the exam has now taken the exam. Uh, and I have also the results here. So... Uh, Firstly, I, I just want to repeat something which I, I touched upon last week. I think the uh, the team behind the exams and the revision classes, uh, I just want to give them a shout out and ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he, that he rewards them abundantly because it's an extremely difficult job to take what is all of that material. And even though we have an amazing uh, also trans- transcription team and the, the team that does all of the notes and the, and the summaries and snapshots and everything that they do, it is still an, uh, a massive amount of material. It's over a year of, st- of study and or, over a year of classes to have all of that material and then to condense it into revision notes and then to further condense it or to select from it uh, exam questions uh, th- that can actually then be, be used for an exam. I think it's a very difficult job and task and I think it's also something which, um, you know, which we don't, we don't really, uh, I don't think any of us would, would, would kind of relish that prospect. It just takes so much time and dedication and effort. And so I think that the uh, sisters who, who did that job this year, mashallah, they did an amazing job. And I think that they, inshallah ta'ala, uh, ask Allah Azza wa Jalla that he gives them a share of the reward that we're earning from, from bringing people closer to the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and introducing them to perhaps a type of tafsir that they weren't familiar with. So they did an amazing job. And I hope that inshallah ta'ala, uh, you know, if you have any ongoing, uh, or if you have any feedback, you have any, any comments, you think that there was some way that it can be improved, that you email us and you email the team at PG and inshallah ta'ala for next year, then at least we know what we can do and improve. Um, that's something which I think would, would be helpful for us. Uh, and also I think uh, if, if there were any particular issues with regards to this exam, so if there was something, maybe one of the questions you didn't understand, or maybe there's something that you want me to go through in class, I have the exam, but it's a long exam. So I, rather than going through all of the questions and and, and that's what the revision uh, classes were first were for. Um, but generally, what, what I think the sisters tried to do, and, and I did uh, review the exams before they were they were put out, they, they tried to give a selection between what we usually do in the introduction in terms of the revelation of a surah, in terms of the names of the surah, and then a general uh, understanding of the tafsir of the verses. And inshallah, it wasn't at such a level where it was too difficult, but at the same time, it wasn't meant to be extremely easy either. We wanted you to revise, we wanted you to go back to that material, we wanted you to, inshallah ta'ala, become more familiar with that revision. So, um, alhamdulillah, quite a few of you took the exams and I just uh, I just received the uh, the people that took the exam and, and I was uh, looking through the locations with, with Shaz just a few minutes ago. Um, mashallah, we have a lot of people from the UK, obviously. Uh, from the US, there's, there's a... a Good group of people that took the exam from the U.S. We have some Canadians, some Malaysians, um, a number of people from Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and India, uh, and then we have some places where, um, uh, like Jordan and Germany and Philippines. We have someone from Ghana. Uh, we have someone. We even have someone from Barbados. Mashallah. Uh, so th- we have someone from the Caribbean. We have someone from Qatar. So alhamdulillah, we have like a very wide uh, and varied student body. So it's something which we don't necessarily see uh, week to week and day to day because I don't really know where everyone is and you don't really know. And it's not really like a Zoom call where we can see all the participants. But something is good when we when we get something like an exam and we see the feedback and we see 
the different people that are engaging with this. And ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that He makes that a good sign for all of us. Then inshallah ta'ala Allah is pleased with what we're doing. And that Allah gives us the blessing and the ability and the tawfiq to continue. Uh, and it's something nice to see that Muslims from across the world, despite myself being in the UK, we have people across the world tuning in. And I hope that also then inshallah ta'ala gives us all further motivation, whether it's myself or whether it's the people behind the scenes, the technical team, the transcribing team, the, uh, the other different people that we have. And all of you as students, just the fact that we have uh, this amazing group of people from across the world, all of them wanting to study the book of Allah subhanahu ta'ala. Inshallah, ask Allah Azza wa that just as He's brought us together to study His book in this world, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala unites us in Jannah where we can meet and be neighbors together, inshallah ta'ala, in the highest levels of the gardens of paradise. So I'm not going to go through all of the results because there's, there's too many to go through, but I wanted to kind of shout out to uh, everyone who kind of got above 85%, so that's like the kind of like the top 10, 12, 15 people. Uh, and then, you know, everyone else, mashallah, you also did very well. We just don't have the time to go through everyone's name. So, uh, 85% and over, uh, Refan Mia, mashallah, from the UK, uh, Sister Hanifa Abdul Hakim from the US, uh, we have Sana Haydar also uh, from Saudi Arabia, mashallah, we have uh, Zuhira Zainani from Malaysia, and uh, I think it's Madavi Ruperelia. I hope that I said that correctly. Probably didn't. From the USA. Uh, and then just slightly above them in the grades, we have Nazia Siddiq from the UK and Hena Akhtar also from the US. Uh, Amin Abdul Hakim also from the US. Sumeira from the UK. Then we have a couple of Canadians, Fawzi Saeed and Noor Khan. Then we have Hasia from Ghana, MashaAllah. And then we have a couple of Brits, Haniza, Aslam, and Ghazi Azim Ahmed. And then right at the top, our top two grades are both Americans, Suad Zaman, and in first place, Widad Zaman. Uh, I don't know if there's a relation there or not, but either way, there's those are our top grades. So, mashallah, you did amazingly well in your exams. And ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he mixes from amongst those people who benefit from that knowledge and put it into action. So that's essentially what we had in terms of the exams uh, and it's something which I would encourage you all to do uh, if, you know, even if this year's kind of, kind of gone past, but inshallah ta'ala in, in future years, I know it takes time and I know it takes effort, but it's something which uh, which I think is inshallah ta'ala helpful in terms of revising the knowledge that you have. And it was the methodology of the scholars with the past that they would regularly revise their knowledge. So they will regularly revise what they studied, they would regularly revise what they would, uh, you know, what they would memorize. Like our teachers would tell us that everything that you memorize, and they don't mean Quran, because Quran is something which you should be doing like every day or so. But in terms of everything else that you memorize, so if you memorize, for example, a small book of hadith, you memorize, for example, I don't know, maybe a text in fiqh, or you memorize, for example, a poetry in, in tafsir, like a zamzami that we did uh, last, last academic year, that kind of stuff, at least once a year you should be revising that stuff. So at least once a year you should be going through what you've memorized. And the scholars of fiqh used to say that a faqih cannot be a faqih. So a, a jurist of fiqh, a, a specialist in fiqh, kind of cannot be a specialist until each and every year they go through all of the chapters of fiqh. Right? So if you think about, for example, if you were to go to your local masjid and you're doing maybe a fiqh book with your sheikh or with your teacher, you know, maybe that sheikh's going to take three, four, five, six years in order to finish that book, depending on the length of the book and the style of, of his explanation and the length and the depth that it's going into. The scholars of fiqh often used to say that a, a scholar of fiqh doesn't become a scholar until they go through all of the chapters of fiqh within a single year. And that's why these small texts that you have, whether it's in fiqh or tafsir or hadith, that's one of the reasons why the scholars had them. So it's for revision as well. So someone who's an expert you know, in, in, in hadith, for example, in the sciences of hadith, what do they do? Because it's difficult for them to go through the really long books each and every single year. It takes so much time and effort and they're busy, they're teaching, they have other responsibilities. What, what are they going to do? They're going to go through that small text because it refreshes that knowledge, right? It refreshes that knowledge and it makes it easy, uh, easy for them. And that's why you find in some of the, uh, some of the even the, the poetries of fiqh and, and, and hadith and so on, that scholars used to actually say that. They used to say that this book is very good for a beginner because it's meant for them, but it's also very good for an advanced student because it acts as revision for them, right? And that's something which we should become accustomed to doing. So this thing where you don't really revise the knowledge that you have, where you just have it and you, it just kind of like gathers dust and you don't really look at it again, 
you know that's something which 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 uh, isn't a good practice to have um and the scholars of the past like ibn hajar and dhahabi and especially from the scholars of hadith they would constantly revise the knowledge that they had and that's how it becomes stronger and one of the best ways of revision is clearly to teach as well because that makes you actually go back over your material and and to start to look at it in a deeper way and, and to connect with it and then to obviously formulate it into your own words in order to teach it so i would advise those of you that have and i don't necessarily mean you set up your own you know facebook group or you you kind of like go public with this but for those of you that have family members or you're in a small community or you think that people in and around you your neighbors your friends would benefit from this just to teach it to even three four five six people it's not really important the number that you have or the location that you have as long as you have people that are willing to learn even if it's only a handful of them and it's something which helps you because i think the person that benefits most from teaching is the teacher before anyone else because even if you don't say everything you know you don't teach everything that you've learned you will probably revise everything that you've studied and possibly look at more uh, sources and references that you haven't even come across in preparation for that teaching so i know that you know not, a number of people that I know that teach they have so much that they material that they gather they're probably going to teach 25 30 40 50 percent of that material the other 50 percent is their background readings them looking and researching and so on and that's something which is extremely important to do it's, it's something which is a good skill to also develop as well so it's something which I would encourage you to do if it's something which you can do you have young people in your family maybe teenagers you want to get them to connect with especially these surahs of the quran and you don't have to take three four years like we've done in terms of tafsir you can literally summarize this within a lesson or, or you know each surah a lesson or each uh, a few surahs per lesson however you want to do it but you have the information there just simply to revise that knowledge is extremely important so with that being said inshallah ta'ala we're going to continue with the tafsir of surah al-layl so last week we began with the tafsir of Surah Al-Layl and we reached the third verse. I think we finished the third verse. And essentially Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah Al-Layl has taken in the first three verses an oath by a number of things. The first is the night, the second is the day, and the third is the creation of the male and the female. And we finished at, at, at the end of that third verse and that oath that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes and the statement of Ibn Al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala which is a beautiful statement that both or all of these oaths that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes by the night, the day, the male, the female, all of them point to Allah's rububiyyah. They point to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's lordship and his power and his creation, jalla fi ula. And the way that that's done is because the night and the day show Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power over the heavens and his control over the heavens by controlling the sun and the moon and the way that the, the skies work and the heavens. And the creation of the male and the female shows Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's control. It is an example of the control that Allah Azza wa Jal has power over the earth. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has control over the heavens and Allah Azza wa Jal has control over the earth. And Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala says, and that is total control. Because the night and the day or the sun and the moon determine time. And the whole universe is based on this concept of time. Right? We're all working towards uh, Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And the creation of the male and the female which is basically every living thing falls into male or female that is the oath that Allah takes by the thing that is working to that time so by the creations of Allah that are working at that time or towards that end of time so Allah takes an oath by, by time by mentioning the day and the night and then what Allah created in order to work to that time scale that Allah has placed, that limit that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed upon this earth. And so that is the, um, that is the, uh, the, uh, the example that was given by Ibn Qayyim ta'ala. And he also says, and Ibn Kathir ta'ala, I think we mentioned this last week, he says also, and others from amongst the scholars of tafsir, that just as there is a big difference between the day and the night, and there's a big difference between males and females, Right? There's a difference between the way males are physically and emotionally and uh, in other ways biologically and so on, and females. Then likewise, the day and the night also has a big difference between them. In the creation of the, of the day and the night, there is a big difference and wisdoms between the two. Good in, uh, and benefit in one and good and benefit in the other. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then comes on to verse number four and he says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ إِنَّ سَعْيَكُمْ لَشَتَّى 
So the ways that you take will also differ greatly. Why do they differ greatly? What is the connection between this verse and the verses that came before it? Because there is a big difference, right? There's, they are considered to be opposites, male and female, day and night. And just as there are opposites in the way that Allah has created uh, the heavens and the earth and created humankind and created animals and the jinn and so on, then likewise, because verse number four is what we call Jawabul Qasim, right? And we did this a number of times last year in QP year three when we were going through Surah Al-Duha and Surah Al-Teen and those surahs, we always said that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes a qasam, He takes an oath in the Qur'an, there is always at some point, whether it's after the first verse or the third verse or the tenth verse, somewhere in that surah, there will come what we call the Jawabul Qasam. What is the Jawabul Qasam? The reason why the oath has been taken, right? Jawab literally means the answer, the response to the oath. Why are you taking the oath? So someone says, by Allah, right? Or I swear by the, by the Lord of the Kaaba or by the one in whose hand is my soul, as the Prophet used to often say when taking an oath, وَالَّذِي نَفْسُ مُحَمَّدٍ And then there has to now come a response. Why have you taken the oath? What is it that you're going to say? Right? What is the reason for which the oath was invoked? That is called Jawab al-Qasim. The Jawab al-Qasim here is number four. That Allah takes an oath by the day and the night, and males and females, and just as they are varied and they differ and they are opposites, then likewise the path of humans and jinn in this world in terms of working for the akhirah or working for it in terms of belief or disbelief in terms of earning reward or gaining punishment in terms of the end result of either paradise or hellfire will also differ inna sa'yakum lashatta the way that you take will differ greatly and ikrima rahimahullah ta'ala the famous student of abdullah ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma said the word sa'i here means your actions meaning the ways that you take meaning your actions what you perform in this world, meaning the deeds that you will gain, they will also be varied. Right? So we have people that do good, we have people that do evil. And that's why Qatada Rahimallah Ta'ala said that Allah Azzawajal took an oath here, and the oath is to show that people will be different in the way that they act in this world and the way that they behave, the actions that they perform. And the difference between day and night is like the difference between the believers and the disbelievers. And that is what Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala also said. He said in his in his tafsir, in the tafsir of this verse, in Nasa'ya he said that indeed, O mankind, your actions are different and they vary. Because from amongst you will be the disbeliever and the one who disobeys his Lord, and from amongst you will be the believer and the one who obeys his Lord. And that's why Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala said that this is the Jawab al Qasim. Ibn Ashur in his tafsir. He said that the relationship between the things that Allah Azza has taken oath by, taken an oath by, which is the day and the night, and the male and the female, and the relationship between that and between the Jawab al-Qasim, which is that people will have differing, uh, differing paths, he says is like the day and the night in the sense of the metaphorical use of light and darkness. So we know that in the Quran, Allah Azza often refers to light as in being guidance. Right? Light is a form of Guidance or guidance is often described as being a light. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, Nurun ala nur, right? Light upon light, meaning guidance upon guidance, right? So one of the ways in which guidance is, is described is that it is a light. Right? And we know in a number of verses of the Quran, but we also know from the Sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, that the people of the believers on Yawm al Qiyamah, when they are entering or they are going over the bridge that Allah will place over Hawfa, over Jahannam and they're trying to get into Jannah, that Allah will give to each and every single person a light in accordance to their Iman and their actions, right? So depending on how strong a person's Iman is and how much they did in terms of good deeds and obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they will be given a light because everything else will be in darkness. Everything else will be in darkness. And so that light that each and every individual has will determine how easily and how quickly they enter into Jannah. And that is why the hadith says that from amongst the people will be those who will enter into Jannah like lightning, right? as quick as lightning, and as powerful as lightning. And others from amongst them will enter in the blink of an eye. And others from amongst them will be like a fast rider, someone who is an extremely fast horse. And others from amongst them will run. And others from amongst them will walk. And some from amongst them will crawl. And some from amongst them, their light will be so weak that it will flicker. So when it turns on, they will take a step and then it turns off and they don't know when it's going to come on again and they pause, they stop because to take 
a step on that bridge that the Prophet described as being thinner than a hair, a strand of hair, thinner than a strand of hair, sharper than a, the tip of a sword, and it has claws that come and take and grab and throw into the fire. May Allah save us from that. That is so extremely dangerous that the person who has a flickering light only walks when that light comes on. They're not going to take a step in the darkness because if they fall, they know that they fall into the fire of hell. Whereas the, the hypocrites of that day are blocked from that light, right? They, they're the ones who say, right? Why don't you wait for us so that we may take from your light? As Allah mentions in the Quran. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say, Go back and find your own light because no one can benefit from anyone else's light on that day. And so that is what Allah gives as a metaphor for guidance and iman and so on. It is often described as light. Whereas we also then have the opposite in terms of a metaphor, which is the darkness of misguidance. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Surah An-Nur describes disbelief and so on, what does he say? It is darkness one upon the other, meaning levels of darkness, darkness upon darkness. And that is the description that is given, uh, that is given in terms of Iman and in terms of disbelief or in terms of guidance and misguidance. So that's why Ibn Ashur ta'ala says that that is therefore the relationship, if you like, between what Allah Azza wa takes an oath by, which is the, the, the day and the night, and between the Jawab al Qasim, that you will have different paths in this life, meaning the paths of the believers are different to the paths of the disbelievers. And that's because Allah Azza wa is saying that the path of the believers, in terms of the action, also is done with a divine light, right? There's a divine light that is given by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is what this whole surah is about because the next verses that will come will speak about how easy it is or how Allah Azza wa makes it easy for the believers, right? فَسَنُوا يَسِّرُهُ لِلْيُسْرَى And then for the disbelievers, فَسَنُوا يَسِّرُهُ لِلْعُسْرَى Right? That it becomes extremely difficult for them. So this whole surah revolves around this theme that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given people the ability to choose, he's given them that free will, and those people who choose the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and this is something which we've all seen, we've witnessed, we know it from ourselves, inshallah, and we know it from the people around us. That is that your mindset, the mindset of the believer, the way that they approach the dunya, the way that they approach their life, the way that they approach things within their lives, the way that they approach their family life, the way that they approach their work life, the way that they approach their ibadah, everything is framed within that thing that I am working for the Akhirah. That my path, my actions, my deeds, all of them are going to be judged and how to account by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I can't just go around doing what I want, how I want, when I want. There is a law that Allah has placed for me in order to live my life in accordance with that law and with that sharia and with that methodology and with the example that the Prophet came and left for me. That's very different to someone who doesn't have that concern. That's not a preoccupying issue for them. That's not something which is in their mindset. It's not something which they're concerned about. The person who doesn't care about the dunya, who thinks this is all there is, or thinks that there is no judgment, or thinks there's nothing after this life, there's no akhirah, they will have a very different way of thinking. So when they're told this is halal or haram, they don't care because Aslan, they don't believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They don't, they don't have any belief in Allah azza wa jal. So all the Muslim who's extremely weak in iman to the extent that when you tell them, when you remind them about Allah, their heart is so distanced from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that even though they know the theory, that they they understand the concept, but because of their weakness of iman, it doesn't spur them to anything, no action. Doesn't make them go and ask Allah Azza wa Jal for forgiveness, doesn't take them towards the path of tawbah, nor does it take them to the path of good action and deeds that they should start praying or they should start giving zakah or they should, you know, in some cases fast in Ramadan and so on. You see this. And so this is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying and that's why it is extremely important to understand the message of this surah and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that you have that choice and the person who makes that choice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, makes it easy for them. If you take the path of guidance, Allah azza wa will make that guidance easy for you. But those are the tafsir that will come in the following verses. But anyway, the point being here that this is the uh, the connection that Ibn Ashur rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir, he made between... Uh, between the day and the night as in light and guidance uh, and, and, and darkness and misguidance and between what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that your paths differ and he said the same can also be said for males and females in terms of the, the children that they have so males and females when they have children together you have children that are righteous and children that are not righteous and uh, Sheikh Muhammad 
Al-Amin al-Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala said something very similar in his tafsir also. That he said that this is the Jawab al-Qasim and the, in the Qasim or in the Jawab al-Qasim in the connection between the two you see a link. And that is, and he takes it in a slightly different way but also very, very similar in terms of the essence of the meaning. He says that just as you see a massive distinction like the night and the day are opposites and male and female are opposites, then likewise the paths of people in this life are also opposites. There are those people who choose to purify themselves and their souls and work towards the Akhirah, and there are other people who don't care about their souls, don't care about their spirit, and they don't care about working for the Akhirah. And so you have that big distinction between the two. And this is something which is repeated in the Quran. It's not something which is only in this surah, but it's a, a universal law that Allah Azza has placed throughout the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, for example, in, in Surah Al-Kahf, وَقُلِ الْحَقُّ مِنْ رَبِّكُمْ And say to them that the truth has come to you from your Lord. فَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيُؤْمِنْ وَمَنْ شَاءَ فَلْيَكْفُرْ So whosoever wishes to believe may do so, whosoever wishes to disbelieve may do so. And so it shows that Allah is saying, إِنَّ Your paths will vary. And we can even say, even though the meaning of the verse is speaking about the difference between belief and disbelief, but between Iman and Kufr, but even within the paths of Iman, you have differing levels and differing paths. So there are people who will work more and harder towards the Akhirah, as opposed to other people. Some people are happy just to do the minimum. Some people don't even do the minimum. They may be laxed in certain obligations that are upon them. Some people don't care at all. Like we said, they're happy just to have the label and the name of, of being a Muslim, but they don't really have anything else. Maybe, inshallah ta'ala, I hope that they have at least the shahada that enters them into Islam, but they don't really do anything more than that very basic thing. And then there are many, many levels. And so you have different levels within different people. So uh, Ibn Kathir ta'ala, also says something very similar actually in his tafsir, and that is that he also brings in the opposites in terms of the, uh, the oaths that Allah Azza wa Jal begins the, the, the surah with. And then the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, Inna sa'yakum that the actions of people and what they earn are also opposites. There are those who do good and those who do evil, those who believe and those who disbelieve in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In verses 5 onwards now, and this is like a number of verses together, I don't know if we will be able to go through all of them today. But anyway, these verses now from 5 onwards are the verses that now speak about Allah Azza wa Jal going into those details. Allah Azza wa Jal said, Inna sa'yakum Your paths are varied. But actually, as we said, there are only two main paths. So within those two main paths, you have degrees and you have levels. As we know, there are levels of, of kufr and there are levels of, of iman. Right? So we know that the believers have levels. There are believers who have the height of iman and those are the messengers of Allah and the prophets of Allah, والسلام, and then you have their helpers like the companions, and then you have the righteous and the martyrs and so on. So there are levels of the mu'mineen, of the believers. But there are also levels of disbelievers because Allah tells us in the Quran, Right, that the disbelievers will be in the lowest levels of, of the fire. Right? And in the hadith that is in Sahih Muslim, where Abbas uh, ibn Abdul Muttalib, and the uncle of the Prophet وسلم, said to the Prophet, O Messenger of Allah, your uncle Abu Talib, he spent his whole life protecting you and helping you, so what did you do for him? And the Prophet said, وسلم, it is because of my intercession that he was taken from the depths of the fire and placed on the outskirts of the fire. And were it not for me, he would have been in its depths, which shows to you therefore that there are also levels of punishment as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will now in verses 5 onwards for the next uh, 6 odd verses, Allah azawajal mentions those two paths with greater clarity. Mentions them in greater clarity. Just as in Surah Al-Kahf, that verse that I mentioned, whosoever wishes to believe may do so, whosoever wishes to disbelieve may do so. What Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often then does is he mentions, okay, but this is what happens. It's not just you choose and there's no, there's no consequence, there's no end, there's no result. You choose, yes. But then those who choose one path have one set of circumstances and rewards and those who choose the other path have another set of circumstances or consequences and punishments. So Allah Azza does something very similar here as well. In verse number 5, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, فَأَمَّا مَنْ أَعْطَى There is the one, so one path, right? one varied path, is the one who gives and has taqwa, is mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? Mindful of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions a, a, a hadith. In, and, and these are the verses now, or at least some of the verses that we mentioned last week 
when we were speaking about the causal revelation of this surah. Remember, we said that some of the scholars differed as to whether this surah is Makki or Madani. The vast majority said that it is a Makki surah. But some of them went and, and veered towards it being a Madani surah. And the reason why they said that it is a Madani surah is because of these verses and what who they're referring to in terms of their revelation. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, Imam al-Bukhari mentions a hadith in the tafsir of this verse, and that is the hadith of Abu Abdurrahman al-Sulami, who narrates from Ali radiallahu an, who says that we were once with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in al-Baqi' for a janazah. Al-Baqi' as we know is the graveyard of Medina, uh, not very far from the masjid of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He said that we were in al-Baqi' for a janazah. And the Prophet said to us sallallahu alayhi wasallam, مَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا وَقَدْ كُتِبَ مَقْعَدُهُ مِنَ الْجَنَّةِ وَمَقْعَدُهُ مِنَ النَّارِ There is not a single one of us, except that Allah has already decreed if they will have a place in the fire or a place in Jannah. It's already been written and decreed. So they said, the companions, meaning the companions, they said, O Messenger of Allah, أَفَلَا نَتَّكِلْ So shouldn't we just, you know, let, let, it, let, just, let it be, like shouldn't we just rely upon what's been decreed? Whatever is going to happen, is going to happen, which is unfortunately the mindset of people who don't understand the concept of the Qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You have Muslims that take that thing where, you know, whatever Allah's decreed is decreed. If I'm going to the fire, I'm going to the fire. As if it's a foregone conclusion, right? And that doesn't make any sense, not from a shari point of view, not from a logical point of view. It's like someone saying, you know, if I'm going to be a millionaire, I'm going to be a millionaire. And then just sit at home, don't even work, right? If I'm going to uh, get food, I'm going to get food and not go shopping. Or No part of life works that way, right? I'm, I'm sick. If I'm going to be cured, I'll be cured. And you sit at home and you don't go to the doctor, you don't get any medication and so on. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, yes, has decreed things, but part of that decree is also the steps that you take. And sometimes the steps that you take are successful, and sometimes they're not successful. And that's why you have two people who go out and they do the same job with the same qualification, the same degree. One of them does really well and becomes extremely wealthy and successful. And the other one maybe was even smarter and, and more intelligent and worked harder. But Allah didn't decree it for them, so they don't get the same result. You have two people who go into hospital for the same condition, very similar in age and very similar in health and so on. But one of them, Allah cures and the other one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't. So everything is decreed. But as humans, we have to take steps, right? That's just normal. It is something which we have to do. And that is why the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, in response to that, Rather act, for everything will be made easy for you. Meaning whatever your path is, that, that is the path that will become easier for you. And so some people, Allah Azza makes one path their path, and some people it is the other path. And then the Prophet recited these verses up until the end of, I think it's verse 10, يَسِّرُهُ لِلْعُسْرَى So he said, فَأَمَّا مَنْ عَطَى وَاتَّقَى وَصَدَّقَ بِالْحُسْنَى فَسَنُيَسِّرُهُ لِلْيُسْرَى وَأَمَّا مَنْ بَخِلَ وَاسْتَغْنَى وَكَذَّبَ بِالْحُسْنَى فَسَنُيَسِّرُهُ لِلْعُسْرَى And there are a number of hadith that you find of a very similar meaning, a very similar meaning to this, and that is those people who, uh, in a number of occasions, they, and actually you find that this is a uh, a methodology in the Sunnah that you find, that if the companions thought that people would take these ahadith and misunderstand them, misinterpret them, that it would lead them to a sense of becoming lazy or lackadaisical, or it would lead shaitan overpowering them and, and causing confusion to them, they wouldn't narrate these ahadith. And you will find, like for example in Sahih Muslim, a number of these ahadith, you know the famous ahadith that whoever is going to, whoever says la ilaha illallah before they die, Allah Azza wa Jalla will give them jannah. Whoever dies upon la ilaha illallah, Allah will save them from the fire. And what you will find in narrations, if you actually look, because what we often do in hadith, and this is sometimes uh, not a mistake, but it is some, something which for a student of knowledge, they should actually go a step further. What we often do is we take the text, which is the statement of the Prophet wasallam. But we don't look at the wider incident because many hadith are not just a statement meaning from the Prophet but the companions have an incident that they want to narrate. There's a story that took place that then leads to this narration. And from amongst uh, those, and there's a number of them, even on this issue of Qadr, Imam Muslim in the first hadith that he mentions in his Sahih, in Sahih Muslim, it's a long hadith. But, and it's the famous hadith of Ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah that Umar radiallahu anh says the hadith of Jibreel when Jibreel comes in the form of a man and asks the Prophet what is Islam, what is Iman, what is Ihsan but there's a whole story that takes place before the hadith is narrated 
And that is that some of the scholars of the Tabi'een, they came to Ibn Umar because this was the time now when the, the, the Qadari had appeared. The Qadari are those people who didn't accept that Allah decrees everything. They don't accept Allah's decree. They say that Allah doesn't know what's going to happen in the future. Allah doesn't have anything called a pre-decree. And Ibn Umar said to them that I want you, if you ever see them, to tell them that I am free from them and they are free from me. That's not our religion because I heard my father narrate and then he starts to mention the famous hadith of Jibreel alayhi salatu wasalam. But anyway, the point being that these types of hadith about you know the, the person that says la ilaha Allah, you will find in a number of those narrations that the companions who narrated them narrated them towards the very end of their lives, sometimes even on their deathbeds. And they often say to their students that I'm only narrating this because I fear that if I don't, I will be from those people who conceal knowledge, right? who kept knowledge hidden. And Allah Azza wa Jalla tells us that we shouldn't keep knowledge. Allah curses in the Quran the people of the book because they conceal knowledge. And it was that fear that drove the companions. To, in some of those narrations, you will find the, the, the companions saying that were it not for that fear, meaning that I'm towards the end of my life and I think my end is near, I wouldn't narrate this hadith to you. And that, those are those types of hadith. And from amongst those hadith is the one that's also in Sahih Muslim of Abu Hurairah radiallahu an. It's a beautiful narration. Abu Hurairah radiallahu an says that the Prophet sallallahu was with us and then he got up and left. And we lost track of him. We didn't know where he went. And so we became afraid. Right? They're afraid that the Prophet is going to come to harm because there's hypocrites in Medina. There's, you know, you got the Jewish tribes. You have enemies around him. So they always kind of wanted to know where he was and what he's doing. Right? Kind of have, uh, kind of keep track of him. And so the companions, those that were sitting with him, they kind of say, where did he go? Where's he gone? He's lost and so on. And so Abu Hurairah says, I was one of the first to get up to start looking for him. And then others got up and did the same. And everyone's off in a different direction. He said, I came and I found the Prophet And I saw him sitting in a garden. But I couldn't find the gate to the garden. I couldn't get in. There's walls. I don't know how to get in. Until I saw an animal going under the wall because it had dug under the wall and kind of squeezing through and getting in. Abu Hurairah said that I took that same path and I entered into the garden. And I came and I said, O Messenger of Allah. So the Prophet said to me, O Abu Hurairah, what brought you here? So Abu Hurairah tells him, O Messenger of Allah, you were sitting with us, then you got up, you left, I became afraid, others became afraid, everyone searched for you, we're looking out for you, and now I'm the first to find you. The Prophet took off his sandals and he gave them to him. And he said, I want you to go back out. And the first person that you meet from the mu'minin, from the believers, then give them the glad tidings. And he's giving them his sandals so that he knows the person that is, that's being told by Abu Hurairah, they know that this message has come from who? From the Prophet ﷺ, because he's holding his sandals. That's the purpose of that. Take these sandals and whoever you meet, the first person that you meet from the Muslims, give them the glad tidings. That whoever says, La ilaha illallah and dies upon this will enter into Jannah. Abu Hurairah became so happy. Right? It's an amazing thing to be able to say to another Muslim. As long as you stay firm and la ilaha illallah, inshallah you will have Jannah. And we know that that's, a, that's a, an accepted tenet of our faith. That even if a Muslim does evil and harm and they commit sins, and even if Allah Azza wa chooses to punish them, eventually every person who, who dies upon la ilaha illallah with sincerity in their heart, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will eventually remove them from the fire and enter them into Jannah for eternity. Abu Hurairah leaves the garden, comes out, and who's the first companion that he meets? Umar ibn al-Khattab So he says, Oh Umar, these are the sandals of the Prophet and he gave me a message to give to the first person that I meet and it's you. Meaning, don't just give it to Umar, the first person that you meet, tell him, then the next one, then the next one, and so on. But the first person that I met is you. And so he tells him that he said, whoever dies upon la ilaha illallah will enter into Jannah. Umar when he heard this, he punched Abu Hurairah on his chest so hard that he fell on his back, right? Fell on his backside. Abu Hurairah then gets up and he's outraged, right? He's shocked and he's hurt. And so he goes back to the Prophet and Umar follows him. He says, when I came to the Prophet I was crying because of the pain that he felt. Umar is a strong man, right? He has a lot of power and a lot of force. So Abu, the Prophet says, Oh, Abu Hurairah, what's wrong? Why are you crying? So he tells him, Oh, Messenger of Allah, you told me to do this. So I went and did this. The first person that I met was Umar. And this is what Umar did in return. So the Prophet says, Oh, Umar, why did you do this? 
He said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, did you tell him to take this message and go out and tell people? He said, yes. The Prophet Umar said to the Prophet don't do so, O Messenger of Allah, because if you do so, people will become lazy. Why are they going to become lazy? And who's Umar talking about? He's talking about the generation of the companions. He's not talking about me and you and the people in 2021. He's talking about the likes of the companions of the Prophet These are the best people of our Ummah. After the Prophet these are the best Muslims ever. And so he's saying, because when you tell people, they just become lazy. It's human nature. Shaitan comes, he whispers, because they don't understand. Right? Or maybe some of the people, even if the companions understand this message, or the senior companions, the younger ones won't. Or the Arab Bedouins that come, or the new Muslims that come. When this message spreads, there will be people who don't understand this. And when they don't understand this, that is when shaitan plays with them. And they don't understand what the meaning of these texts because they've taken one hadith and taken it out of context in isolation and they've divorced it from all of the rest of the Qur'an and the Sunnah that speaks about so many different other concepts as well. And that's why you have to bring it together. When you study this hadith or hadith like this, you can't just take the one hadith and ignore everything else. All the other verses of punishment, all the other verses and the hadith that speak about the believers being punished and the people of Iman and so on, you've got to bring it all together. And which person in their sane mind would then say, once they've studied all of that, that actually it's okay, I'm just happy with saying la ilaha illallah, I'm not going to do anything else. Yeah, I might be punished for who knows how long, how many hundreds or thousands of years that Allah decrees, however long that may be, I'm okay with that. Which sane Muslim would take that type of mindset? And so therefore, when you when you don't understand that context and you give it to a Muslim who doesn't pray, right, who doesn't worship Allah Azza wa who doesn't have any affiliation to knowledge or anything else, they're going to just base their whole existence as a Muslim upon that one hadith. That's all that they have. And maybe, and perhaps Allah will forgive them. Allah knows best what that person's outcome will be on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. But it's not the way that the Muslim should think because why put yourself in that place and it is more dangerous to be in that place and more likely that that person will end up being punished because of them not having fulfilled any obligations or stayed away from much of the haram. And that is why Umar said, O Messenger of Allah, don't do this. And Umar as we know, was a man who was inspired, a man of knowledge, a man of wisdom, and the Prophet ﷺ would often listen to his, to his advice because Allah on a number of occasions agreed with Umar in the Qur'an as we know. So then the Prophet ﷺ said at the end of the hadith, he said, فَلَا إِذَن Then in that case, don't tell anyone. Right? And so the Prophet ﷺ is agreeing with Umar And these hadith are related afterwards, much later by Abu Hurairah and their likes, many years after the death of the Prophet ﷺ. But it shows to you that there's a way to understand this concept and it's extremely important to to take this in, in, in the correct context in which it is meant to be understood. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that's the hadith therefore that we mentioned from Al-Bukhari. So Allah Azza wa then says as for the one who gives, gives what? Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu said, gives what he has. Right? Gives spends from what he has, from what he uh, from what he has in terms of wealth and money and so on. And Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said, he gives and spends the right that Allah Azza placed upon him, the rights of Allah, meaning your zakah, right? What Allah Azza made an obligation upon you. And that's also something similar that was mentioned by Al-Dahaq rahimahullah ta'ala from the scholars of Tafsir. He said, man zakka, man zakka Allah, or the one who purifies themselves by spending for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah Azza says, what taqa? So the person who gives, but it's not just about giving, because some people give, to show off, some people give to be praised, some people give to curry favor, and so there are different reasons to give. This person, though, is the one that Allah Azza praises, the one that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala loves, the one that Allah Azza is pleased with. He's the one who gives with taqwa, right? With taqwa, taqwa, as we've mentioned, I think before, generally amongst the scholars, it is to erect between yourself and the punishment of Allah a barrier, or as some of the scholars of the Tabi'een said, it is to Please Allah upon knowledge that has come from Allah and in a way that is pleasing to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and to stay away from the haram also from the knowledge that Allah has given to you. So Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhu said taqa meaning that he fears his Lord and Qatada said meaning that he stays away from the haram right and it's very similar in meaning because each one necessitates the other so to give what you have or to give the zakat, or to give sadaqah, all of them kind of come back to the same meaning. And to fear Allah Azza wa Jal, to be conscious of Allah, to be aware of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that is always watching, that is always listening, that is always subhanahu wa ta'ala, all knowing, all hearing, all seeing. And therefore to stay away from the haram 
is also similar in meaning. Uh, and uh, the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shawqiti, he said, and Allah Azza wa Jalla in this verse, he simply says to give, atlaq, and he says it generally. Doesn't say to give what, doesn't say to spend what, doesn't say to spend how much, he just simply says the one who spends. So, Sheikh Ta'ala then says, therefore that includes every form of giving, every form of sadaqah. Because we know from the, from the, a number of hadith, the Prophet وسلم, when the Prophet was speaking about the concept of, of sadaqah, of charity, not only was it the wealth, or the, the financial charity, the charity of wealth and money that was included, but other forms of charity as well. So commanding the good is sadaqah, forbidding the evil is sadaqah, smiling is sadaqah, giving salams is sadaqah, removing something harmful from the road is sadaqah, and so on and so forth. All of this is sadaqah, right? And so Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin takes a position that it's not just the physical spending or the spending of the money, even though that is what the majority of the scholars of tafsir said, and that's obviously the meaning whenever spending is mentioned in that way or sadaqah is mentioned, then clearly the financial sadaqah, the spending of wealth and money, is one of the most uh, you know, primary forms that is being mentioned and referred to. But there is a wider concept as we know as well. And so he says that that is all included. So saying a good word, giving salams, smiling uh, to your brothers or sisters and so on. All of this is included, uh, the Sheikh says, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. And then the scholars, as we mentioned before, mentioned who this was referring to, right? Who are the examples that are being referred to? Whether it's these verses 5, 6, and 7, which is the path of goodness, or whether it's 8, 9, and 10, verses 8, 9, and 10, which is the path of evil, right? And there are scholars who, who even went, like as the Makhshari, for example, said that these the first group is like Abu Bakr and his likes, and the second group is the likes of Abu Jahl and Umayyah ibn Khalaf and those people as well. But what you have uh, that is famously reported, as we mentioned last week when we were speaking about the cause of revelation, and this is where you have that slight difference of opinion amongst some of the scholars of tafsir, those scholars who said, for example, that it's a Madani surah, they based it upon this particular, these particular verses and who it's referring to. So as we said, the vast majority of the scholars of tafsir took the position that it's a Makki Surah. And they took that position because they said that these verses, and even the verses that will come towards the very end of the Surah, uh, at, the, at the conclusion of the Surah, they are referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu And we mentioned the narration last week of Amir ibn Abdullah ibn Zubair, Amir who was the son of the companion Abdullah ibn Zubair, and Abdullah is obviously the son of Zubair ibn al-Awam radiallahu anhum ajma'in. And Zubair uh, is the first cousin of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but he's married to Asma. And Asma is the daughter of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhum jami'an. And so he mentions the story of how Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, as we mentioned last week, used to free slaves in the Meccan period. The likes of Bilal being the most famous, and, and we'll mention this in more detail because when we come to the end of the surah, those last two or three verses also refer to this particular incident and and. Uh, some of the scholars mentioned it in slightly more detail in terms of who is being referred to. But generally, uh, as we know the story, that is freeing people for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the likes of Bilal radiallahu and buying them because they're Muslims and they're being tortured and persecuted by the Meccans and freeing them for the, for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then uh, his father, who is Abu Quhafa, right, radiallahu anhu, who later on become a Muslim after the conquest of Mecca, but for the vast majority of Islam, he's a non-Muslim. And Abu Quhafa says to Abu Bakr, if you must free someone, why don't you buy slaves that are strong and healthy and people who have, who have strength so that they can help you and come to your aid if you were to need them. And Abu Bakr says, because I'm not freeing them for that reason. Right? I'm not buying them and freeing them for that reason. I'm buying and freeing them for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is why Amir ibn Abdullah ibn Zubair, he says that I heard then from my family members that it was because of this or because of these this incident that Allah Azza wa Jal then revealed these verses. And that is the first position. The second one is the story of Abu Dahdah radiallahu an, or what is considered to be the story of Abu Dahdah. And I think we mentioned last week, and I don't remember if we went through the long narration, but I think that we did, of the tree that's overhanging and uh, you know in the garden of the neighbor and the children would want to eat and the man would come and he would forcibly take the dates from those children i think we went if memory serves me correctly we, we went through that narration that narration that speaks about this and mentions abu dahdah is a longer narration that you find 
in the books of Tafsir and some of the books of Hadith, like Ibn Abi Hatim and so on. And we mentioned last week, I think, I believe, that the statement of Ibn Kathir ta'ala, that he said that that's a strange narration. Because that's not the one that is well known in the books of Hadith as, as, uh, as when it comes to this particular incident. The more famous, well-known narration doesn't mention the revelation of these verses. Whereas that narration of Ibn Abi Hatim mentions the revelation of these verses. And that is why Ibn Kathir and the likes of those scholars didn't accept that narration to be the, the more authentic one. And so they dismissed that story as being connected to these verses. But the story of Abu Dahda is a well-known story. Radiyallahu anhu, and the more, uh, the more well-known or more authentically established narration that is collected in the Mustad of Imam Ahmad and the Mustadarak of Imam Al-Hakim and others, alayhi wa rahmatullah, is the narration of Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, and he says that someone uh, came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and he said, O Messenger of Allah, I have a, I have, uh, my so-and-so is my neighbor and he has day palm trees and my fence is leaning on his day palm tree. So just like even now today, like in, in houses, you know, you have fences that divide your land from your neighbor's land, right? They divide your property from your neighbor's property. In those days, clearly, you know, they don't have the money and they don't have the, the, the you know, the, the materials to start building, uh, building structures that we can that are self-standing. And so this man, because of his poverty, what he's doing is he's leaning his fence or his wall on the, uh, on the tree of his neighbor. So his neighbor objected to this, right? And he said, you know, I don't want you to use it. And so he said to him, so why don't you just give me the tree? Right? Give me the tree. You have a whole farm, right? You have so many trees. This one tree doesn't make a difference to you. Give it to me and I can benefit from it as well. So the man refused. And so the Prophet, even though he said to him, give it to him and in return you will have a tree in Jannah, the man refused. And so Abu Dahdah, radiallahu anhu, was from the companions of the Ansar. He heard this, right? And it's because it's from the companions of the Ansar that those scholars said it's a Madani, uh, Madani revelation. But anyway, Abu Dahda hears this, and Abu Dahda has a a farm of his own, and he says, "O Messenger of Allah," uh, or he comes to the man and he says, "Give me, right? Give me your tree, and you take my whole garden. Take my whole garden and just give me one tree." So the man, because obviously this makes sense, right? he's getting a whole garden for one tree, he gives it to him. So he comes to the Prophet Abu Dahda and he says, O Messenger of Allah, I sold my garden for the one tree. And as for the tree, I give it to the man who's the neighbor. Right? He could have it for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the Prophet said, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Kam min min How many heavy trees will Allah Azza wa will give, give to Abu Dahda in paradise? How many heavy trees, meaning full of fruit, Heavy trees will he be given in its place in Jannah. And in the in one narration, miraran. He said this, the Prophet said this to him a number of times. And so Abu Dahdah then goes because he was living in that place. His farm was also where he lived. He comes to his wife and he doesn't, in one narration, he doesn't even enter into the land because it's not his land anymore. He gave it away. And he calls that to his wife and he says to her, we need to leave. And she says, why? And he says, because I gave it for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal. And in return, I was given a tree in Jannah. And so that is when she said her famous statement, that's an amazing transaction. That's an amazing transaction. The fact that you sold all of this and you have Jannah is well worth giving up this garden. And that's the one that is the authentic one. Uh, and that's the one that is well known in the books of Hadith. And that's the story of radiallahu anhu. But because the narration, even though it's an authentic narration, because it's not really mentioned in the context of the revelation of these verses, the majority of the scholars didn't connect the two, right? They didn't connect that two. But clearly it works, right? That doesn't mean that it doesn't apply to Abu Dahdah. So there's a difference here between what is the cause of revelation for which then the verses are revealed or the verses being revealed and then applying to a number of situations because the verses are general in their application. So even though, as we've mentioned before, if a verse is revealed due to a cause, the ruling is still general in its application. And so therefore, Abu Dahda is from amongst those who spent for the sake of Allah Azza wa with taqwa. As was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, as was Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu, as was Abdurrahman ibn Awf radiallahu anhu, as were all of those companions who had wealth and they gave it for the sake of Allah Azza wa Jal, Abu Talha radiallahu anhu, and many others from amongst the companions radiallahu uh, anhum who spent in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. All of them meet this description, and not only the companions, but even those who come after them. 
from the Muslims, from the believers, from the people of Iman and Tawheed who spend for the sake of Allah, not wanting anything except for the sake uh, for the pleasure of Allah This refers to all of them as well. But we're speaking here about a specific issue, and that is what was the reason for which these verses were revealed, and that would therefore, in the opinion of the majority of the scholars anyway, it is more likely to be referring to the actions of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu wa And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, says, And that combination is something which is also a well-known combination because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often mentions in the Quran those people who give, right? Those people who give, those people who give. And we know that generally in the Quran, salah and zakah are mentioned very closely together. But then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala often mentions sadaqah or giving in general, just spending for the sake of Allah in general, it is mentioned more widely in the Quran. So you have salah and zakah that are normally coupled together or often coupled together, not always, but often coupled together. And that is the oblig- obligatory part, so the obligatory salah with the obligatory zakah. But the concept of just giving as in sadaqah and giving for the sake of Allah is mentioned many times in the Quran from Amongst those verses is And often you find within the description of that giving is a an essence of taqwa or an uh, if you like for example an indication towards taqwa. For example, when Allah says those who spend from their wealth during the day and the night in in, in open and in, in private, they will have an amazing reward from their Lord, right? And so them giving in private and giving in open and giving during the day and giving during the night gives an indication that these are people of taqwa because otherwise they would only give when people could see, only give openly and publicly. But they do both. They do give in open when it's good to give in open and they give in private when it's good and better to give in private. And that's something which they do. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to this a number of times in the book of Allah Azza I think we're going to stop here inshallah ta'ala for today. If there's any questions or comments, inshallah, we'll take them. Uh, otherwise, we can conclude. Zuhira is asking this dichotomy. Does the usage of the present tense in verse 1 and past tense in verse 2, is it part of it? Was it what is the difference? Uh, I didn't come across any 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 difference, to be honest. And both of them actually, uh, I think they're present tense, not, 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 uh, not necessarily past tense. I think they're both referring to present tense. وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَى وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا تَجَلَّى And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. But even if, if, if there is, I didn't come across anything in terms of a difference between one being present or one being private. Uh, one being present and one being past tense. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Hasiya is asking, can it refer to the different characters of the believers and people in general? I don't know exactly which, uh, what that's in reference to. Mahira, do we consider the story of Abu Dahdah as istish- an istishad? Uh, the story of Abu Dahdah, radiallahu an, is considered to be something which, which shows that the application of the verse is general. So it's not something which, uh, it's an example that you would give. For example, if you were to teach this and you were to say, for example, that Allah says, to give examples of that, you could quote the example of Abu Bakr, quote the example of Dahdah, quote the example of Uthman ibn Affan, عنهم, as well as many others from amongst the companions. But it doesn't have anything necessarily to do with, um, you know, to do with, uh, to do with the cause of revelation. So there's a distinction that you always have to make in tafsir between what the scholars consider to be a reason for revelation and its application. The application is always, in the vast majority of cases anyway, unless we know that it's specific, for example, to the Prophet something unique to him, it's always going to be something which is a general application. Whereas the actual cause or incident or the reason why those verses were revealed, that's what would become more uh, specific and, 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 and more uh, defined. And we can't really use the story of Dahdah with Abu Bakr because they are of two different times and two different circumstances completely. And Allah knows best. Uh, in verse number four, so, so let me just go back. Can you refer to the different characters of the believers and people in general? 
so it's primarily referring to the two paths, which are the path of Iman and the path of Kufr. And we know that because these verses now that we've started, verses 5 onwards, speak about those two, that dichotomy there. That's the dichotomy that is being referred to, the people of belief and the people of disbelief. Those are the people that are primarily being referred to. But then, as we said, within each one, obviously you have levels and you have strands and you have uh, it's a spectrum within each one as well. An incident where the verses of a layl could have been recited rather than revealed. Yeah, that's possible also. So it's possible that sometimes a verse is, is um, uh, you know, could have been mentioned at that time. Uh, but the, like we said with Abu Dahdah, the story of Abu Dahdah, the more well-known established narration, that is the authentic one, doesn't have any indication of the verses at all. It's not mentioned at all. And the other narration, which is which is much longer, that does mention mention that, uh, doesn't really, um, and and in fact that narration of Ibn Hatim, in some in some of its wordings, doesn't even mention the name of the companion. Doesn't even mention who the companion was that went and and he gave his garden for that tree. So he doesn't even mention Abu Dahdah. But some of the scholars link the two because the two stories are similar. So it seems like they are speaking about the same person. Um, but uh, it's possible, therefore, yeah. Sometimes you have that where. The verses reveal, but it's not necessarily the cause of revelation. It's just the Prophet recited the verse concerning that. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Okay, so inshallah ta'ala we will conclude here. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu ala nabiya Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.